Okay, everybody, welcome back to the LEO Sideshow. This is going to be episode two of season two. We're happy to have you here. Uh, we're especially happy because we have a special guest, our first guest of the second season. Uh, let's see if I can get this introduction down uh, correctly here. We, uh, our guest this week is an award-winning author of two books and has, uh, has served and retired uh, after serving 26 years, three months, and five days at the Tallahassee Police Department, uh, we'd like to welcome Donna Brown. Donna, thank you for showing up. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you having me. That's a that's a very specific tenure. 26 <laughs> years, three months, and five days. <laughs> but who counted? <laughs> you know, and I think that that's something that uh, because like Patrick and I are we're part of the FOP, so we're always uh, you know trying to negotiate contracts and everything. And uh, one of the things that we have found is that it seems to be like a you know like that finish line of your uh, however many years that you put in is a big deal, and we're really proud of of making it that far. So I completely understand where you're coming from with being uh, 26 years, three months, and five days. <laughs> <laughs> it, so. it, to survive a career, it's an accomplishment for anybody, actually. Yeah. Well, did it feel long or did it seem like it went fast when you were working? It did go quickly. And I didn't realize that until it was that time. And then all of a sudden I was like, wow, that seems pretty quick. Did you also notice, um, like the younger officers and when you saw them, you're just thinking, wow, I am just getting, I'm getting up there. Well, what it was is when I started working with children of officers that I started with. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> then I realized, good Lord. <laughs> I could see uh, that. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, so... Part of what's interesting and what we really enjoy with having guests on the show is that uh, with our listeners get to hear a little bit about, um, you know, why we would even want you as a guest. And I think for you, uh, you have, you, you're, you know, you're a, uh, I don't even know what you call it, like a double whammy here where you get the, you're the author of two award-winning books. And then you also have served as a, as a sergeant Well, you retired as a sergeant. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. And, uh, so uh, how about, can you take us through a little bit of your career uh, your, when you started and kind of like your progression through the police department as before hitting retirement? Sure. Um, I was hired fresh out of college. I graduated from Florida State University in 1979 uh, with my bachelor's in criminology. And I was hired a few months after that. And I was one of only five women at our department at the time. So it was kind of new for everybody. Um, I started out like everybody working the road and eventually became a field training officer, a position I really loved. A, then I got transferred to the department's training unit, which was also a great experience. I was promoted to sergeant out of there, went back to the road, eventually became an FTO sergeant. And after a few years, that's when I was transferred into our criminal investigation bureau. And I supervised our general property unit, which at the time was like burglary, back when we used to work bad checks, which obviously <laughs> they don't do that anymore. Um, 
general property crimes, like I said, and then I moved into sex crimes unit. I spent a couple years there, and then they moved me to homicide, where I spent 10 years there. Wow. Um, and about a year, year about a year before I, I retired, uh, the chief decided to do a major quote unquote reorganization and I was transferred out of homicide and spent my last year in the mobile data, mobile data computer unit. Wow. She talked about a fish out of water was me. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting and, you know, uh, you know, we're going to get into your books a little bit later into the episode, but, um, but one of the things that you mentioned is that when you started, you said 1979? Correct. So when you started in 1979, how big was the Tallahassee Police Department at that time? We were less than 200. Okay. And do you know about how many people you were serving in your community? City proper then was about 100,000, if I remember correctly. Wow. And then when you left... Uh, after your 26 years, how big had uh, Tallahassee Police Department gotten? Over 400. Wow. And I believe now their authorized strength is around 450, I think, somewhere in that ballpark. Wow. So, you, I mean, you saw the department double. And then with that, I mean, there's probably, a, you know, organizational changes and, you know, throughout your whole career that you that you saw. Oh, tremendous. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, we went from, you know, a, a, a chief and captains to a chief, deputy chiefs. Um, now there's majors and bureau commanders. And, wow. and absolutely, they, they changed the rank structure tremendously. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it's interesting because, so Patrick and I have uh, 11 and 12 years on. And uh, and we already feel like we can see so much, you know, changes within our police department and the community and policing as a whole. And it's always interesting to talk to somebody who, you know, has 26 years on uh, and, you know, how they have seen things change so much. But it's interesting. So uh, I was trying to pick up some stuff that you uh, said there. So when you got your uh, bachelor's degree, did was that in... Uh, was that part of your plans to become a police officer? Actually, no. I had no intentions of becoming a police officer. I had this vision. I, I had always wanted to work with kids. And I knew some people that uh, had some investigative positions with the state dealing with disadvantaged youth and such. And that's really kind of what I wanted to do. And I started applying for jobs and everyone at that time wanted women, but they wanted to have law enforcement experience, which back then that just wasn't the norm. And certainly nobody had five years of experience at that point. So truly I was one day reading our local newspaper and I was just about out of funds in the paper that the police department was applying. And I'm like, well, okay. So I applied and got hired. Awesome. Well, and you know, uh, it's it's interesting because we have we had a couple uh, female officers who also came onto the job into the late seventies, and uh, and they have a similar story to you where they were they they reached a lot of those firsts 
in uh, our agency to reach, you know, the first female sergeant, the uh, first female lieutenant. Uh, and, and, you know, is that, I guess that was something going on in that time frame that, you know, we, we, re uh, we realized that we needed pol uh, women police officers. So, I mean, is that, I mean, is that, I mean, what, I think, well, I think we still need them. Well, we do, but what I'm saying is that uh, it's interesting how similar or how close the time frames are for the, uh, you know, some of those firsts that happen in your career, uh, which, you know, you know, we're a half of a nation away from you. And then we had the same first around the same time. Well, I'll be honest with you. Um, a, another woman had actually applied to become a police officer at my agency and they were denied and told outright they did not hire women. Wow. And she stood up and she filed a lawsuit and she won. And that actually, I was hired not long after that settlement. Yeah. But the five of us, we, and back then we still had, I don't know if, if your agency still does, but we had the physical agility test, yeah. the written test, those types of things, the, the, the other normal, the polygraph, that kind of thing. And we had to pass the exact same physical standards test that the men did, mm -hmm. uh, the running, the lifting, the carrying, all of those things. And of course that did weed some people out. So it wasn't like they lowered their standards to let us in. Right. We did what was required and, and got hired. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that your uh, generation also like paved the way to make it easier or like more of a, a norm for women to get into police policing. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? I, I would I would say that I think most agencies around the country still average twelve percent or so of their uh, allotted force that's women. Yeah. Uh, some agencies it's up to twenty percent, and of course we've seen women at all ranks, yeah. chiefs all, all the way down. So, so yeah, it certainly has changed. Um, Tallahassee is it's in the south, and not only did the predominantly male police department have to get used to us, but the community did as well. The community wasn't very welcoming initially as well. And I don't know if, if the women that you work with have any of those same stories, but so it was twofold to have to gain acceptance with my male coworkers, but also with the citizens of, of Tallahassee. Right. Um, uh, I know that uh, Patrick probably was wanted to step in here because he's actually in charge of our FTO program right now at our agency. I, I was, yeah, I was going to mention that. So <laughs> I have to give a shout out because that, that nice. Yeah, that, that is a uh, an important position. It really is, and just finagling with the people because I have some people coming out of the, out of the academy here in of August, so I got to angle some an orientation week and get uh, my FTOs. I mean, because I, I feel like the most important part of the field training program is the FTOs and their investment into training. I don't know if you can concur with that. Absolutely, I do. Yes. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just one of those positions that, and, and for people listening who don't understand, FTO stands for the field training officer, and it is the it's not just a position we select and if you would agree that we 
just pick a random officer. It's someone who's invested in training an officer because it, it is, it's, you're going from, you know, schoolwork and the academy to uh, the street. And it's quite the uh, culture change. Most definitely. Yes. Um, and and got to have people that have the patience of Job. Yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> definitely. So, but yeah, shout out to that. So. Well, good for you. I know that's not an easy job. It's not, and luck. Luckily, it gets it. It gets rotated, uh, but you know, we try to give it to officers such as myself and uh, Frank that have actually been prior FTOs, just because we know what the, what it's like. Yeah, that we normally rotate through the FTO supervisor. Uh, what, like once every two years, maybe three years at a time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so you don't get worn out because, I mean, I mean, you can tell there's so much reading, evaluating, and then, you know, all the other little follow-ups and everything that go along with, you know, each, each class that yeah, comes the, out. The, the documentation aspect of it is quite underrated. Tremendous. Yes. Tremendous. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, well, I appreciate that, Donna. And uh, I think that what we really wanted to get into here is your books, and I'll introduce them here. We have uh, Behind and Beyond the Badge, Volume 1, and Behind and Beyond the Badge, Volume 2. Uh, and we have, let's see here, the, the, we have, the Volume 1 is, uh, is the award winner, and then the Volume 2 was a finalist. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Volume 2 was a finalist in the International Book Awards in the True, true Crime category, which is weird. That's where they put it, but... Uh, <laughs> I guess it, it's kind of true crime, but but not really in the true sense of the genre. But right. um, but yes, I was proud of both of them. And uh, you know, we joke around a bunch on the job saying, you know, I should really write a book. And I think most of us are saying because of the experiences that we have on the job. But you kind of you wrote a book, but you kind of went different. You you know your uh, your mission was a little bit different. What can you tell us a little bit about what made you decide to do this? Sure. In 2016, I think our the climate of the country mm-hmm. is similar to what it is now, although I think now is much more pronounced. But I really got angry. And because predominantly everything I saw in the media or even on social media was negative towards the law enforcement profession. And I got angry about it. And and when I started talking to people, people just really don't give a second thought that there's a real person behind the badge. And I felt that was incredibly important for people to know that the person behind the badge is no different than they are. They just have chosen a different profession and they put on a different uniform to go to work every day. And so when I started pitching the idea to, uh, and, and volume one is predominantly people that I had worked with that I thought very highly of, had honorable, great careers. Yeah. And I started pitching the idea to them and surprisingly, everybody was on board with it. And what I initially started doing was sending them out questionnaires and it really was asking some deep questions and what I got back from them was more than I could have ever asked for. Truly, their thoughts on what it's like to do the job, 
the stressors of the job, the stressors on their families, uh, career defining moments. But it was exactly what I thought people needed to read. Was it uh, kind of scary though? Or I mean, do you have background in writing any type of uh, any type of writing? Mostly just articles and stuff. I had certainly never considered writing a book, so I really had to learn a lot. Um, I found a couple of people that, good Lord, I bet you I asked thousands of questions. <laughs> and with, without them, I certainly couldn't have done it. Um, but the response I got from volume one was just overwhelmingly positive. And I said, I had no thoughts of writing volume two, but because of the response I got, and it was people wanted to know more. And volume one actually gave me a lot of opportunity, especially for speaking engagements and some amazing conversations with professional groups, college students uh, on, on campus, uh, professional groups, professional organizations, women's groups. It, it just was endless and people truly wanted to know more. So volume two, I think is much deeper and actually the people that have read both agree with that. Oh my um, gosh. Yes. Oh, I, yeah. I actually, um, yeah. what, what, were we, what, what were we talking about, Frank? I think it was the first story in volume two was like eye opening. Um, Sergeant An Angulo. Yes. Yeah. The one the, he, without what was that? I mean, I'm not going to get dive into it too much, but that story about what what was that outside his house? Yes. Yeah, that was crazy. And and I mean, obviously he's a hero, but he is probably the most humble individual you'll ever met meet. He he hates the recognition that he got, uh, but his story was so served so many purposes, and especially. I think it highlights the effect the job can have on the family. Yes, yes. I mean, he literally had to sell his house and move. And, uh, of course, the kids are thriving now and stuff. So, I mean, there, there is a happy ending to that. But, um, yeah, I, it's a phenomenal story. Yeah, that that was the one that just stuck in my head. You know, you, you, the second book, you read that first story, like, oh, my God, like, you you, it, you cannot make up this story. And you're, you're right. You touch on the kids and just the after effects of that incident. But I don't know what your thoughts were, Frank. Uh, well, actually, I was going to say that um, I really, really enjoyed volume one. And then when I read volume two, there were times where I actually got teary eyed or got chills. And uh I thought like Donna probably either uh, just got so much better in her writing and it was the stories that uh, she had chosen to write about, but it's not, it's not easy to just write a story and get to those emotions flowing. Not that that was your intent, Donna, but, but you could like, it really uh, resonated with me to where, um, you know, I, um, like I said, I, I was so emotionally involved in the stories because of uh, what was it? The, um, and uh, I apologize for not f remembering, but it was the uh, the wife of the uh, one officer who had been killed in the line of duty. And I just remember. Uh, yes, that uh, was in uh, volume one. Yeah. Yes. And, and that was uh, it was just, uh, you know, again, it made you so sad and uh, everything. But but yeah, I, the, the books are great. And I and I, I can't. 
And you said, you know, in our discussions a little bit before this, uh, this podcast here is, you know, with, you didn't think, or you didn't know that it was going to branch out this way. Like you didn't, you did not expect for the speaking engagements to, to pop up. I really didn't. And like I said, when I got invited to speak at a university down in Tampa, it was initially to their criminal justice students. And when I got there, uh, the professor, uh, told me, he says, well, he says, we went ahead and opened it up to everybody on campus, faculty and everything. So when I walked into this auditorium, I was truly not prepared for that big of a group. <laughs> not that, that the size matters, it doesn't, but it just was kind of like, wow, this many people want to want to listen and, and have a conversation. What I tell people, I talk to them about what the books are about and why, mm-hmm. why I wrote them. And I don't want to stand there talking for 30 minutes. So I tell them up front, I want this to be an interactive discussion. So that's what it ends up being. And honestly, I watch jaws drop and eyes open when we we get into the meat of the discussion. And the one scenario, a quick scenario I always give them, I'm like, you know what happens when you call for help? And of course, the quick, correct answer is I dial 911 and somebody comes and I'm like, yes, but let, me, <laughs> let me tell you what really happens. And I go, somebody first off has to answer the phone. That information they gather, the person who asks you all those stupid questions, uh-huh. um, that information is given to a dispatcher. The dispatcher, and I tell them for this scenario, they dispatch a police officer. Yeah. The, the officer gets on scene and within a matter of seconds or a minute, I need fire. I need EMS. I need other units. I need a detective. I need crime scene. I need a victim advocate. I need a supervisor. And that's when literally the jaws just drop. And people truly have no idea how this works. And then we start talking about the things that officers do and see and, you know, the PTSD element and, it's just really been great conversations. And like I said, the mantra of my books has been, my books don't have the power to open minds or change minds, but perhaps by offering a different perspective, I can open them. And truly if I, just opening one person's mind for me, the books are a success. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of, you know, uh, that's exactly why, Patrick and I have started this podcast where it's like, maybe if we can just explain and try to, you know, level up with, you know, the citizens about what, you know, why we are doing things that it would make, because it makes sense. And, you know, with you know good intentions and everything that we could, you know, like you said, change the minds or open the minds so that we can build this relationship back up. And, um, but, but, you know, you just mentioned in your, uh, in your scenario there, you know, what you call the uh, village of first responders, you, you mentioned fire, you know, EMS, you mentioned the dispatchers. Uh, I mean, you from your books, I mean, who do you leave out there? The, the crime scene text, your victim advocates. I mean, there's so many people that are in our village of first responders that you do a good job in your books to, to give their perspective and give their stories too. 
Oh, absolutely. And, and obviously, when people think of first responders, it's police, fire, and mm-hmm. right. And I could never have done my job without all of them. And that included dispatchers. I know people don't think they're first responders. For me, they are the first first responder. And, and a lot of people in groups, and, I, and I've talked with people who are or with like blue help and then the PTSD aspect, I said, you have to include forensics. You have to. And, and I tell people, you know, in, in, in my talks with them, I said, it's not like television. And I, and I said, crime scenes take hours to work, sometimes days. And I said, think about a, a mass casualty incident, a mass shooting. I said, they're in there for days. They're seeing it. They're walking around it. They're stepping over it. They're photographing it. They're measuring it. They're collecting it. And again, people just have no idea. And I said, you just don't understand the effect it has on those people as well. And they just so often get forgotten. So I, I just I had to include them in the books. No, I, I think it's great because, you know, we had we had a, a dispatcher on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh and you know the story that she chose to share you know she says and she you know she took that home with her that you know and she had to internalize or she tried to she had to you know think about it and almost you know and saying that how uh dispatchers as well as all the other village of first responders you know they're they're seeing and living the same thing as the police officers that you know we're already granted that Yes, you have a hard job. You have, you know, you see things that normal people don't want to see and and hear about. But it includes all these other professions that um, that sometimes get left out. Well, I I think it's not not even just you know people who aren't in this profession forget about. I and mean, we forget about them at times too. And just from my own experience, you forget about you know dispatch. They're the ones getting the initial information, so you kind of forget. You know, that they get the same emotional. Uh, told that we have yeah well and that's it and i don't know what you do with your recruits but when when i had recruits in the fto program i always made it a point either as an fto or an fto sergeant um some departments don't require it and we really didn't either but for mine i took the recruits to the comm center communication center and i made them spend a shift or two in there and it was always drummed into them you show these people respect. They are your lifeline. And anytime, I, and even outside of FTO, if I had a, a detective or an officer who smarted off to a dispatcher, <laughs> oh no, you know, and I literally, I guess it's treating them like a kid. I, you will go to the comm center and you will apologize. I mean, Plus, they can give you really all the crappy calls. So yes, <laughs> <laughs> so you always want to keep them on your good side. No, I, I, I a supervisor, you know, we we hate that too. You, know, you got to treat them with respect. Absolutely. Uh, everybody makes mistakes now and again, but you still got to treat them with respect. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So and uh, one ahead. other sidebar with with the books, like I said, uh, initially I had everybody in both volumes they actually had to agree to spend some time writing out their thoughts. It was in answers to questions I sent them and almost every single one of them to a person told me they were so glad they did it, that 
it was almost like a healing process for them. And that was not what I expected. And I if I never sold a book, a copy of the book, that in itself made it worth it. Wow. I did not, I did not think that either. So, but just by, you know, almost writing it out was almost a form of therapy of just kind of like not so much closure, but just something, uh, it benefited them. Yes. And, and actually in, in Scott's story, which, um, we wanted to get permission, which we did of the deputy that was killed. We, we talked with his wife and she gave us our blessing to do the story and put it in the book. And she wanted to read the story though, before it went to the publisher. So of course we gave her that opportunity and, and she and Scott have talked a lot, mm -hmm. but even she said, I learned things I didn't know. And, and Scott and his wife, when she read the story, and, and they're very close and they communicate very well. She still said she learned things that, that he had never said to her. And again, uh, I, it just warmed my heart is, is the best I can say. And, and just recently with volume two, I had a, an officer, he's, he's still working the job. He read volume two and he told me, he messaged me and he said, my wife and I read the book together. And he says, I, I, I'd like to think that we have an open communications. We're good about it. He said, but she said when she read it, she really had no idea what officers dealt with. And he said, it's opened up a whole new avenue of communications for wow. them. So, so as I said, the books have just taken off. I mean, for the community, for other officers, gosh, I'm not alone in how I feel for, like I said, police explorers. I've read your book and it, it, it really gives me, I hope, good insight as to what I can expect to be or, or to encounter when I do the job. And I said, yes, those are all things that I just really had never expected when I wrote the books. Yeah, I mean, uh, we actually, we had one of our followers on Instagram who follows the podcast uh, message us and say that they are about to go into the academy and that they have been listening to the podcast because they uh they just wanted to get a glimpse into some of the stuff and you know it, it made us feel proud that you know hey people are coming here to try to see what it's going to be like or you know try to get some gl a glimpse into that and that's what your books provided to you know this uh the, some of the police explorers that you talked about yes and I, I i love what you guys are doing and i think the more that gets out there and especially now uh, and, and that's one thing I do say to begin my talks with everybody is, are there people in this profession that shouldn't be? Absolutely. You know, but that's no different than any other profession. Yeah. Um, you know, so the communication is the key and it's, it's, it's got to start somewhere. Right. Uh, um, let me see if what else I have written down here. I know I probably sent you way more than you wanted. <laughs> well, I was surprised to tell you the truth, but uh, we have an ADA that comes on the show, uh, Catherine, and she she does the same thing because uh, we just like to see that the investment, even in, with you, with how, uh, you know, you want to make sure that you get this message across because, you know, you're so passionate about the message. And uh, I think we all are. And that's why, you know, 
um, it's great to have you on the show. But no, I mean, I, I definitely didn't mind seeing it. Uh, it was a it was a nice surprise. Yes, it, it certainly helped. Well, I mean, oh, good. well, I would just like when when I read the books, I wrote down like I don't maybe Donnie, you can help me out. My themes or what I took away from the books is I wrote down three things, and you kind of already touched on the, on the uh, first one, which is you know give, getting a glimpse into you know just a glimpse into what our career has been or, or it's for us, it's still going as far as, you know, the understanding that people don't really comprehend and not just from they're against it, but they just don't understand what all goes into what we do on a daily basis and kind of the toll it takes on our families. But I, I also put wrote down two things. One, and, and we almost have this kind of, you know, barrier that it's like, oh, you need to, you need to work your 20 years and retire and then, you know, go do something else. But you really touched on and provided stories of individuals who it was okay for them to say, you know what, I did my policing career for five to eight years and then something better came along and that was perfect for me. And I I think of the one individual that worked with, ended up leaving, he was FTO and then ended up going to like a technology company or something like that. Andy. Yes, yes. Yes. And I, I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, hey, it's okay. You know what I mean? I mean, we have this kind of, I don't know, macho thing about us that, oh, you got to do your, you know, your full career and then re- and go somewhere else. But, you know, I don't, it's okay for other people to do other things. And, and I think I kind of read through that as far as part of the books. Yes. And, and that is a point that everybody in volume one uh, is retired or, or was right. retired at the time that I wrote the book. And so that was kind of a second underlying theme for the books is I would hear from a lot of people, you know, I'm getting ready to retire or I'm retired and I really don't know what to do. And, and I think it's key. It's a huge change to go from a hundred miles an hour and, and knowing what's going on to zero. And it's important that you plan and you know, so many people, and it's not that you have to have, as I refer to it, phase two, a, a career, but I do think it's important to, to have a plan. And I think those that don't are kind of lost. And I, I, I hate to see that. Um, well, I thought but, that uh, it was interesting because <clears throat> some kind of what Patrick was saying where uh, in you when you're saying that you don't have to have uh, or like retire and do nothing. What your books did was that you opened, at least for me, to say, look at all these other things that you can do after serving in law enforcement. Right. And uh, whether that be, you know, like, the you know, being it only for five, eight, ten years compared to, you know, doing a full career. Uh, you have so many things that you have been trained on and the, the communication aspect and that you can branch off into so many other things that I thought, man, this is really encouraging. And it actually even opened my eyes to what I might want to do when I get to reach my face. So there is life after <laughs> law enforcement. <laughs> I can hear, I mean, I've been retired now 14 years. Um, there is life. Uh, after it and you know in in the books i mean you know my, he was my old captain in in investigations you know he went on his passion was always baseball and stuff and he became a major league baseball scout um a guy who uh hand makes saddles his horses are his passion and leather work was his passion 
Um, but then there's there's those who enjoy their pension and they travel. Yes. Um, and which is awesome. You know, you don't have to do anything. That's for sure. That's the nice thing about it. Plus, plus you you get to travel to the the your beach is uh, Florida Beach, so I, I can't be too bad at travel. Um, I grew up on the east coast of Florida, so I mean, for me to go to the beach, it was a ten minute drive. That was one thing. Moving here, uh, it's a little bit longer, but due south, I can probably get to the beach in about a, a, a good beach in about an hour. Um, although I'm not going to the beach anytime soon, sadly. <laughs> right, <Yeah>. Flor- Florida. <laughs> an hour in the wrong direction with the virus so uh i'm, I'm staying away right do you now. have a third thing patrick or did you already touch on no i it, it was just the two things of you know she touched on the phase two and the ability you know to you know you don't necessarily have to finish out your career if you have a passion for something else like she mentioned uh andy where you know he was right it seemed like basically he loved his career, loved being an FTO, but just something else came along and it just worked out better for him. Well, and part of with Andy's story, which I, I give him credit and he and I had many, many conversations and we still do. Um, Andy was the first one that really opened up about PTSD mm. and it was literally tearing his marriage apart. And he made a conscious decision and at the same time, and he, he is a man of faith as well. And I'm a believer in things happen for a reason. And when Andy was struggling with all of this came the opportunity in the tech area for him to try a different career path. And it worked out for him. He's, he's doing tremendous things right now. His marriage is flourishing. His young child, that had just been born uh, is now in college. And, um, but it, I gave him credit. He, he truly opened up about the PTSD aspect. It had changed him. He was no longer the Andy he wanted to be. Well, that's, I think that that's something that, you know, I've even seen uh, in my short career that has now, you know, with we're promoting to talk about our feelings and to get help and there, and to take away the stigma. And I know this is going to sound weird on the, the, the podcast because it's going to be like a, a couple of weeks out, but uh, Patrick and I are actually attending the, um, a, the pod fest put on by the roll call room tomorrow in real time. But again, it's going to be a couple of weeks by the time the listeners hear this, but you know, the roll call room, you know, has been uh, spearheading this blue help and getting officers to just, vent and to you know try in any way possible to reduce police suicides and uh and to talk about any of the you know post-traumatic stress that they have on the job so i think as a policing as a whole and oh and another thing is is that in our our state uh who governs our municipal police departments actually has training uh this year we do like yearly uh training that the state comes up with curriculum and then pushes out to the municipal police departments uh, this year, they actually have in their curriculum uh, about uh, about being mindful and to uh, about the stresses of the job and to get help and to help your partners out and you know really taking a leadership role in uh, mental health. So it's absolutely, absolutely, and I like what uh, what they're doing over at Roll Call Room and 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 some of the others, and and that's why I love 
you know, like doing your podcast when you asked, it's just another chance to talk about it. And, you know, it, it's real. And, and I don't, I didn't until recently tell people, but I was diagnosed with PTSD a couple of years after I retired. Oh, I didn't know that. And I, I said, I just over in the last six months or so have really opened up a little bit more about that. I mean, I'm happy and healthy and, um, you know, I'm in a very, very good place, but, and, and that's when I wrote in there. I mean, when I spent 10 years in homicide, uh, you know, I supervised over 561 death investigations. And if you average that out, that's one a week. And that's every possible imaginable way a person can die. I've seen it and it, it affects you. It can't not affect you. Yeah. Um, and it, it's okay. Yeah. So I, I'm a huge supporter of what you guys are doing and they're doing and blue help and absolutely. Um, so we're winding down here a little bit and uh, I guess what we want to do, I mean, unless you had something else, Patrick. Nope. Okay. Uh, so we wanted to flip the script on you here and, uh, <laughs> and instead of you uh, getting us to uh, talk about the thoughts to pass along to the civilian world and to other LEOs out there right now, could you give any thoughts that you would want to pass along to our listeners, our civilian uh, listeners about law enforcement or the first responders? To the civilian world, it's, you know, the biggest thing I hate, and I see it mostly on social media, but I do see it on national news, is things are not always as they appear to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, know that. Um, know that mistakes are made, but there are thousands and thousands of good, honest, hardworking law enforcement officers and first responders who go to work every day. And, you know, that's the majority. Right. And you know, do our changes, are there changes needed in some aspects? Possibly. That's a whole nother discussion. Um, but they're good people. And, and honestly for you, I don't envy you guys doing the job nowadays. Yeah. I mean, uh, Patrick and I both teach up at our police Academy and it is, uh, just so encouraging to see the recruits, uh, in the last, you know, six weeks going through the the pandemic and then going right into the, uh, you know, this this narrative that police officers are just inherently bad people. And they're still coming, going to the academy every day, some not being paid at all and then putting themselves through and some, you know, who have been hired by police departments who, again, probably aren't being paid that well since they're in the academy. But they're, right. but they're still going every day because... Uh, because they have that good heart that they want to help people and they want to serve. And, and I, th- I just wish people would see that more often and that some of the things that they see on the news may not um, be well represented. Uh, right. And I think every, like you guys, when sometimes when you do see something, it just makes your heart hurt. Does. Um, you know, it's like, that's, that's not what the job is. And anyone who tarnishes the badge and the oath they took, should be weeded yeah. out. Yeah, and, and that's, yeah. that's why, you know, I know that sometimes police unions get bashed, uh, but police unions aren't backing, you know, bad cops, you know? that Like, that, that's, that's just insane to think that, you know, the unions would try to protect and keep on the job somebody who is just, uh, you know, again, would tarnish the badge. Right, right. 
the true the truly bad folks. right and then you know there was a on social media that was a meme going around for a while and it still goes around that says that uh you know police hate dead cops and any other person you know or, or something along those lines i don't know if i got it exactly right right well no yeah no good cop hates uh likes yes, a bad cop. yeah i mean you know absolutely yeah and that's and that leads into, you know, what I would tell people doing the job today is, you know, just a couple things, you know, don't lose who you are. Um, and I, I think the line gets blurred, you know, what you do for a living is a job. It's not really who you are and try to have those outside interests, try to have that, that release, you know, and I think the longer you're in it, sometimes that line gets blurred um, and you become, you know, that police officer. And, and it's hard, but try to try to keep those two things separate. And the other is always do the right thing. Is it always easy? No, but it's always the right thing. Yeah. And, you know, I, know, I still remember this going through the academy where the uh, the ethics instructor said, look, you know, just pretend that your family is watching everything that you do or that you're being recorded. We didn't have body cameras when we first started. So be, be right. pretend that you're going to go home and show your grandmother what you did, you know, the whole time. And if, if you are ashamed of anything that you did or that you, you know, your grandmother would see, then you probably shouldn't do it. You know, so that's, I thought that was always a great piece of advice. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. 100%. I also remember the piece of advice that uh, she had given and it was, and I didn't realize it at first, but, Congratulations, because, you know, upon entering this career, you have a ticket to the greatest show on earth. And, <laughs> and that, that still, you know, stays with me today. Yeah. Oh, that is so true in so many ways. You know, and that's, you know, we, we, when we were at homicide scenes, you know, we always had this like, God, don't smile, don't yeah. laugh because the cameras were there or whatever. You know, but humor, humor that people wouldn't understand it. It's certainly not disrespectful, but humor certainly helps you through it but god you are so right it is i get paid for live entertainment and uh, no other career i think can say that well uh so i want to make sure that i get this right here so please the listeners and we're going to be hitting you up on instagram and twitter uh find your way over to behind and beyond the badge.com there, uh, the website actually really, um, it's really well done. Uh, Patrick and I had just gone through the process of making our own website and it's not easy, but this, uh, website is a nice website. It's clear, easy to get around, but there's links on there, uh, to purchase the books. I want to say you have links for Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and from Apple. Is that correct? Yes. Um, the books are available in as ebooks, paperback, hardcover from all of those. And actually volume two, I'm hoping by maybe August or September, I'll have it out in audio uh, as an audio. No way. Well. Are you but, doing that? Um, I am not, uh, but I found a company that does them and I found somebody to uh, do the reading and that wasn't going to break the bank. So, because <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I'm really excited that, uh, volume two will be out in audible. And if, if it goes well, then I will probably end up doing volume one as well. Um, I didn't realize 
how popular audiobooks are because I'm still old fashioned. I like well, you know what? I am the same way, except for I have in the last six months, I think actually, I think it was for Christmas last year, I got my first Audible subscription for three months, and I've been loving just uh, if, if there's no podcast or anything going on, I listen to it while I'm mowing the lawn or if I have to take a long drive, the audible has been really good. Yes. I agree and with what, you in that because I do. I and do what have date some. did you say for audible? Are you hoping? Um, uh, it'll go out on my social media, but I am hoping maybe the end of August, September sometime uh, ballpark in there. But, and I do have uh, Twitter and Facebook and uh, Instagram. So I'll certainly post it. And on for all your social media, that is uh, also what's your handles on those. So I don't get them wrong. Uh, behind and beyond. There you go. The so badge. Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Facebook. Awesome. Yeah. Facebook, uh, Facebook has a, a good amount of following. Um, I'm, happy about that i'm always looking to, to gain more though yeah well others. we need to promote more because i'm telling you with all the different ways that you that this book can help people you know spouses and uh citizens uh, you know you, you have teenagers who are looking to get into the job I mean, just so much that uh the more that we can get this uh word out and get people exposed to these books i think the better so um all right so everybody go to beyond or behind and beyond the badge.com and follow uh, Donna on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the LEO Sideshow on Instagram and Twitter. And check out our new website at uh, www.theleosideshow.com. Uh, thank you, Donna, for coming. We really enjoyed you having you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. You guys stay safe and thank take you. care. <laughs>